the following message entitled, Make Room for More, Part 4 of the series, Regroup, was given by Joe Ryer on the 24th of August, 2014. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Good morning, everyone. If you could please find your seat, we're going to get started. And if you have a Bible, open to the book of Hebrews. Bob told me to stall for a moment anyway. So take your time up in the, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, before we start the message today, I wanted to pray for, for two things. One um, is IUP and all the students that are coming back. And students, welcome. We are excited that you're here today. And you're among the 14,000 that come back to town every year. And we want to pray for campus I also want to pray for Harvest Church in Catanning. Once a year, they have an outdoor church service in Catanning by the river, which is happening right now. And they often have hundreds and hundreds of people that attend that church service. So we want to pray for them. Um, All three of their campuses meet outdoors at that one location this morning. So we just want to pray for them and for all the guests that will be there this morning as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are, that you are a generous and kind and loving Father that loves to bring more and more people into your family. And Lord, we pray that would happen this morning as the the pastors from Harvest preach the gospel by the riverside in Catanning. We pray many people would be born again and put their faith in you. But we pray that that lives would be changed forever from that one service this morning. But we pray people would experience care and love and affection from your body represented there. And Lord, we just thank you for all the students that have returned and are returning right now. Lord, we pray for each of them and their parents. We pray that for all those who do not know you, we pray that you would have mercy on them. Lord, we pray for just even the, all the parties that have begun. Lord, we, we pray that the most lost, confused, enslaved college student would, would experience salvation um, this semester. Lord, we pray you'd fill every church and campus meeting that preaches the gospel with thousands and thousands of students. And we pray all this for your glory. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be all over the Bible Uh, today, but start in the book of Hebrews. And my name's Joe, if I haven't met you yet, one of the pastors here. Um, And if it's your first Sunday, welcome. Thanks for coming. I have a question for everybody. And uh, raise your hand if uh, if you answer yes to this question. How many of you are the oldest sibling in your family? Okay, good. Well, I was not the oldest sibling. I have one sister, so that makes me the baby brother. But um, I have three children, and one obviously is the oldest. Um, and at times, I, I feel bad for the oldest in some ways, because the oldest child um, in many families, at least in the United States, they, they get a lot of attention. And for parents that are trying to do a good job, they're also the guinea pigs. So they are the test run for every parenting book or parenting video or parenting teaching you've ever heard. You're going to try it out on the firstborn. So if you have multiple children or you grew up in a family of multiple children, um, the rules usually change after the firstborn. 
Like, for example, my, my poor oldest son, he wasn't allowed to eat at McDonald's for a really long time. And then my youngest one, he's been eating McDonald's uh, since birth. Not exactly, but you know what I'm saying. And we want him to be healthy, so um, we're not anti-health food or anything like that, but in, in moderation. So anyway, the, the rules change. And for the, the firstborn, at least in our house, if you look at photo albums, pictures, we have a ton of our first son birthday parties. It was like aunts and uncles I didn't even know showed up for the birthday party. And then by the end, uh, the birthday parties get a little smaller. And then the grandparents now have many grandchildren, not just one grandchildren. So the gifts get a little smaller at times as well. Well, the reason I'm saying all this, every firstborn child who ends up having another sibling or three siblings or five more siblings has to make the adjustment to make room for more in the family. And that adjustment For some firstborns can be a smooth adjustment filled with excitement and uh, just uh, the the excitement of being the big brother or the big sister. Others, maybe you still haven't gotten over it yet. You lost lost all the the attention you once had. And it can be an adjustment. And the reason I, I wanted to start there is because today's message is entitled, Make Room for More. So just like in a family, in a house, When you're the oldest sibling, you have to make room for more if the Lord gives your parents more children. Well, in the church, in any church, we have to make room for more. Here's the reality. God loves to expand his family. He loves to grow his family, his church family, numerically. It has been his plan from the beginning. In fact, in um, the book of Genesis, God promises Abraham that his descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky. That's a big family. And this morning, my simple aim is that we as a church would just get God's desire to make room for more people as he brings more people our way. This is the fourth message in our, in our series for, for fellowship groups. And one of the reasons we made the change is because we want to make room for more people in the church, and we want to expand and, and connect with people that God's bringing our way. We want to have a big family because God wants to have a big family, and we want, as you come, we want you to feel connected and cared for and welcomed. And this, in many ways, has everything to do with our salvation. So here's the big idea that I'm going to try to get across this morning. Our salvation should affect how we love, welcome, and invite others into our lives, into the church, into our fellowship groups, into our neighborhoods. Just recalling and remembering all that Jesus has done for us should have an effect on how we welcome others in. And even if not one single new person came through the door this morning, my guess is there's a number of you that do not know each other. So the starting place for application for this message is just getting to know each other and loving each other and welcoming each other, and then we can welcome more people. So I have three simple points. The first is practice hospitality. The second is accept others, and the third is befriend others. Practice hospitality. Now, you might think, does that mean like, like the cover of a Better Homes and Garden magazine. That, that's what I need to do. I need to decorate my house. I need to, to lay out the tablecloth, set up the flowers. Is that what the Bible's talking about? 
when it says practice hospitality? Not at all. All hospitality means in the Bible when it's used, it literally means it's, it's practicing the love of strangers. Hospitality is loving those you do not know and welcoming them in to a friendship, a relationship with them. So the Bible has a lot to say about practicing hospitality. It has a lot to say about welcoming those you don't know into your life. And the reason it has a lot to say about it is because that's God's desire, that he would have this ongoing, growing family throughout the world of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we're part we're a small part of that giant family. And so God wants us to be welcoming those we don't know into our lives, into the church, into fellowship groups. Let's just start with a few um, Bible verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The author writes, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware let brotherly love continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares and and what the the author has in mind here oftentimes when hospitality is used in the new testament the the primary context and application is when guests Preachers and teachers would come through town. You'd open your home to those you don't know who are servants of the Lord. And when the author of Hebrews writes, for some have entertained angels, he's just not saying that hypothetically. In the the Old Testament, we know that Abraham, Lot, Gideon, and Manoah all entertained angels. As they welcomed people in, they were actually entertaining angels. People, angels that God had sent to serve a purpose for the Lord. So when we serve, we, we don't know who we're welcoming in, but we're called to do it. Listen to this, Romans twelve thirteen, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So we're to care for the needs of other believers and we're to, be, we're to seek to show hospitality. First uh, Peter 4, 8, 9, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we're to show hospitality. We're to be welcoming people in. And it's interesting that that Peter really gets real life under the inspiration of the Spirit. We're to do it without grumbling. So you could imagine, let's say we lived in Bible times, and Peter, James, and John show up at our house, and we think, we're going to be hospitable hospitable to them. We don't know them. So we're going to say, come on in, guys. You know, eat anything you want. Sleep on the couch. Do whatever you want. And as they're doing it, they're messy. They're like locusts. They devour everything you had in your house. And as they leave, you look at your, your wife or your roommate. And, oh, man, I, I can't believe that. These guys are pigs. These guys ate everything. And you're grumbling. You're complaining. Um, we're to do it without grumbling. The idea of hospitality is so important to God that even in the, the, the qualifications for a pastor, one of the qualifications is that they be hospitable. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Well, why would that be on the list? I think the reason it would be on the list is because it's God's heart and desire that we as pastors and we as Christians continue to welcome people in to God's family, to God's household. And so I want to stir us that that we want to make room for more people. Relationally, I want you to make room for more people. As you're switching from a care group to a fellowship group, and you might not know everybody, make room for more people. Talk to them. Invite them over. Get to know them. Take them out for coffee. Have them over for a meal. Just get to know them. I realize that we're all busy. If I, if I interviewed any of you, you probably all have a full life and a full schedule. But I want you to make room for people. Because God wants us to make room for people. As I prayed there a, a few moments ago, our town just filled up with 14,000 more students than were here last week. And most of those students, not all, but many of them, came not knowing too many people in town, not having family members here, maybe coming from difficult summers and difficult lives and difficult family situations. And so it's a, it's a huge opportunity for us to show love to those who we don't know. And, and one thing to motivate us, one thing that motivates me is to remember that we all once were strangers, foreigners, outcasts to God's people. You weren't born a Christian. You were born an outcast, a stranger, an alien. We were not, probably most of us, if not all of us, were not born Jewish. We, were not, we did not stake claim to the Old Testament. We were born strangers, aliens, and outcasts. Listen to what Ephesians 2.19 says. This happened after you trusted in Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We once were strangers, aliens, outcasts, and then Christ brought us in. And you want to remember that when our lives are full and busy and we have things to do and the lawn needs to be mowed, but there's an opportunity to get to know somebody, to be a friend to somebody, to, to pray for somebody. We, we always want to remember what we once were and what Christ has done. After God gave the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, in chapter 22, He wants to remind the Israelites what it was like when they lived in Egypt. He says this in chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Somebody's traveling through. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Don't wrong those who are just passing through, because you once were that as well. And so how that applies to us is, is we once did not know God, we're not part of God's family, not part of God's household, and now we are, and as God brings more people into His family, 
into his household, he wants to use you and I to care for those people. I just want to give you a recap of, of my journey to Indiana, Pennsylvania, just to illustrate what it means to someone when God's people invite them in and, and care for them. So at, as, at the age of 18, I moved to IEP, like maybe some of you this morning, to go to IEP. I was 18 years old. I was not a Christian. I did not come from a Christian home. I was enslaved to all sorts of sins. Um, I came here because my dad said, you either need to get a job or go to college. So I thought, well, I'll try college. I don't want to get a job. So I came. Um, 18 years old, didn't know any Christians in town, didn't go to church in town, knew no one who knew the Lord. Well, a year and a half had passed, and and the consequences of my sin began to mount. Um, I took a class at IEP. I began to read the Bible. And as I read the Bible... God began to make himself very real to me. And I knew by the end of, or halfway through my sophomore year, that I was a hell-deserving sinner. I knew that Jesus died for my sins, and I placed my faith in him. And I, I knew about two or three Christians at the time. And because of my lifestyle, I had to leave all my, my friends. So in, in a few-month period of time, I went from hang out with and knowing tons of people at IUP to wanting to follow Jesus. And that meant I lost all my friends. So I remember praying, Lord, I don't want to sin anymore. I want to follow you. There's churches all around. I need Christian friends. Would you please bring at least one to me? And he brought one and he brought more. And, and I began to go to churches in town began to go to campus ministry groups on campus, and I got to experience being welcomed into God's household and God's family. I spent the first two years of my Christian life at Victory Christian Assembly in a campus ministry on town, and I was so welcomed and cared for. They weren't pressing me on my theological views because I really had none. They weren't quizzing me on my Bible knowledge because I had very little I had faith in Christ, and they welcomed me as a Christian brother. Then I came here as a senior in college, and the same experience happened all over again. I was welcomed into the church. We had small groups at the time called home groups. Doug Brown was my leader, and he made lots of time for me. I texted Doug today, and I said, How old were you 17 years ago, and how old were your children? So this will put it in perspective. Those of us who who have younger children. So Doug was 40 years old. His oldest son, Josh, was 11. Daughter, Amanda, was eight. Son, Matt, was five. And his daughter, Kara, was three. So you see where this is going. He was a busy man at that moment. And he would regularly take me out for breakfast. He would regularly get to know me and ask me questions and, and do what these verses are talking about. I was an absolute stranger to him, and he became a dear friend to me. Well, why did he do that? He did that because of what Christ had done in his life. And that's what we want to happen over and over again in the church. Not just for college students, but for everyone. Remember, those of you who didn't grow up in the church, what it was like when you first came to this church or to another church you were a part of. It's intimidating. It's scary. It's, 
it's a, it's a big mountain to climb for many, many people. And you might have thoughts about, well, if they really find out what my past is like and what I've done, they're not really going to want to um, welcome me in and, and love me and care for me. So it can be a scary thing. So for us as a church, we want to remember that and we want to go after people and love them and care for them, just like Doug Brown and many others in town did for me and for many of you. Because we're, we're part of God's family. And because we're part of God's family, He wants us, as the older brothers and sisters, to welcome in the little brothers and sisters who are just coming to faith in Christ. Listen to this verse, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are god's people once you had not received mercy but now you receive mercy look at verse 10 it says once you were not a people it doesn't say once you were not a christian but once you were not a people when god saves us he puts us together it's his plan that we are in community with one another, that we are part of his family, his body. And so we're to talk to each other and relate to each other and spend time with each other. So we're to practice hospitality. And we're to make time for it. Don't believe the, the, maybe the thought that you might have that I, I can have at times that, well, when I'm older, when this next thing happens, I'll, I'll have more time. And for those of you who have retired in the church, I'm, though I'm not near retirement age, I know just from watching you that as soon as somebody gets retired, it's like a target for everybody to ask them to do something. So once you retire, it seems like most people get busier than ever. But we want to make time to love and care for God's people. Listen to this parable in the book of Luke, chapter 10. This is... This is probably a familiar parable to many of you. Jesus says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, this is Luke talking, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, Jesus said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So he gave a good answer. The religious leader thought Jesus did a good job. But Jesus is going to give a parable, an illustration of this. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile journey. It's a dangerous journey in the times of this, this story. Um, people will get robbed and beaten up often. And he said, this man's going down. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him pass on the other side, so the priest sees the man. He's all beaten up. This is one of God's chosen priests. The man's laying here. The priest walks to the other side of the road, keeps on walking, maybe to serve God's people. Man's laying in the ditch. The, the story continues. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, 
he saw him and passed by on the other side. So Levite, um, one of the 12 tribes, he was the assistant. They were often the assistants to the priests. They see the man lying in the ditch, sees him lying there. He decides, hey, I'm going to go to this side of the road as well. And he keeps walking. Parable continues. But a Samaritan, and what you need to know about Samaritans at the time is a good Jewish believer at the time would have thought a Samaritan had really mixed up beliefs about God and really kind of poor theology. And they had many concerns about him, but that, that was one. And so they didn't, they didn't mix real well. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So the Samaritan, who isn't looked upon very highly by the Jewish people during that time, sees this man laying here, and he has compassion on him. This is a parable, but the guy's coming from Jerusalem, so the guy laying in the ditch could have been a Jewish man as well, who, who might not have had a high view of the Samaritan. But the Samaritan looks at him, and he has pity on him. So he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, which, if it was a fair rate of the day, would have covered about 24 days of care in this inn. And then he said to the innkeeper, he said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So in the context of practicing hospitality, showing love to strangers, to those who we don't know, helping those who are in trouble with life, or with finances, or with legal problems, with everything in between, we're to go. We're to have mercy. We're to love our neighbor in that way. And this is a theme that not only shows up throughout the, the, the Old Testament, but it shows up in the Gospels in a very pronounced way. Listen to what, what Luke says, because he wants us to know that when we make room for those we don't know, and we care for them, and we pour our lives into them, we'll never regret that. Luke 14, verses 12 and 14. This is in the middle of another parable that Jesus is telling. He says in verse 12, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. This is a parable. It's not wrong to invite your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, or anything like that. But he's making a point. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, help and care for and love those who, who might not have others to help them and care for them and love them. And though that may take a lot of energy and maybe it will cost a lot of money, you will be rewarded in the resurrection of the just. There will come a day when you will be rewarded for the way you care for those God, who God cares for dearly. Then one more, Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Matthew writes, Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you do it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. This is so near and dear to God's heart. His standard is not our standard. He loves people of every stripe and kind. He loves people of every educational level. He loves people who have made an absolute mess of their lives because of their sin. He loves them, and he loves to clean them up. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, it's not, it's not the, the, the healthy, it's not the righteous who need a doctor, it's the sick. He said, I, I came for the sick. The reality is we're all sick, and we need Jesus to open our eyes to see our sickness so that we run to him. And so it's our privilege as a church to be able to care for one another. So as we practice hospitality, we want to open our lives and our homes and our fellowship groups and, and our, our wallets and our purses and, our, and be generous and care for people that God cares for. And those of you who have been Christians for a while, you know that at times this can get messy. People have real pasts and real struggles and real challenges and they don't often go away immediately when they come to Christ. But think about your own life. It's not like your life today is without any complicated situation or any absence of complete mess. No, we're we're human. We have challenges. We have struggles. We have problems. We've been sinned against. We have sinned. And so that, that makes a mess of things. But as you get to know people and love them and care for them, here's something I want us really to get. Accept them as a believer in Christ. If they are a Christian, accept them as a Christian. Accept them because they put faith in Jesus alone. Like I said when I was telling how I came here and how Doug Brown began to befriend me, he didn't like interrogate me about every particular view I could have on every subject in the world. He just wanted to get to know me and love me because his, his acceptance of me was, was based on what Christ has done for him and for me. So that's the second point. Accept one another in Christ. Listen to this verse in Romans 15. Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome, or your translation may say receive or accept one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. In other words, when we welcome people in 
to the church, into friendship, into our fellowship groups. We want to welcome them. We want to accept them, receive them, just as Christ has welcomed us. So how did Christ welcome you? Did He welcome you because you read the Bible every day? Did He welcome you because of your particular uh, take on politics? Did He welcome you because of your academic and financial status? Did He welcome you based on your morality? Did He he welcome you because you had 100% agreement with Him on every issue that the Bible speaks about? No. Did He welcome you because you vowed that you would never put a tattoo on your body? Did He welcome you because you said, if I'm going to follow you, I will never eat processed food again in my life? No. He welcomed you because of Christ. He welcomed you because His Son was perfect. He lived a perfect life. He died as your substitute. He took the wrath that you deserved and you were forgiven and free. Well, why am I going into all this? Because we want that bar to be the bar with which we accept one another. So, this is an area as pastors we're really um, concerned about that we want us to be a church that welcomes one another who might have a whole variety of opinions on issues of conscience, whether it's use of alcohol or tattoos or food preferences or educational decisions or whatever the, the issues could be. doesn't mean those issues are not unimportant, but they're not the issues that make us Christians. And they're not the issues that unite us with one another as brothers and sisters. Christ unites us. And it's God's desire as we practice hospitality, as we accept one another and love one another, that our unity is found in Christ alone. And not issues of conscience. The, the context of Romans 15 is he's coming out of Romans 14, and it's all about issues of conscience. Can we meet sacrificed idols? What should we do with the use of alcohol? It's issues of conscience. How do we bear with those who struggle with, with things? But in all of that, God wants us to know we're to welcome and accept and receive one another as Christ has welcomed, accepted, and received us. doesn't mean you can't have healthy debates and conversations about all of these things. But they're not what unites us. Christ has to be the unifying factor for a growing church. If it's not, if he's not, then the church divides on secondary issues all over the place. And just study church history. There's a zillion divisions over, at times, secondary issues. So the desire is that Christ is the centerpiece of our unity. So when you get to know someone and love them and befriend them, don't go after the secondary issues that are issues of conscience, that, that there's freedom in. You can go hard after issues of morality that the Bible makes very clear. But when it comes to issues of conscience and preference, call them that, issues of conscience and preference. Not issues that unite Christians throughout the world. Christ unites us. Listen to what God says in Psalm 133, verse 1. Picture God as the, just the, the father of many, many, many 
children. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The idea of this good and pleasant is like delightful, fragrant. How, how happy is God when His children dwell in unity? It brings Him lots of joy. It doesn't mean we're robots that all believe the same things, but it, re- it means that we are united around Christ and not issues of conscience and preference. Let me say one more thing with, with this, and, and I, I know I may have talked to some of you about this at times, but we obviously live in a social media age, and, and we want to be bold about the Lord, and we want to be bold about the Bible. But when, when issues of conscience come up, and maybe there's an article that you're reading, and you think, I'm just going to throw it out on Facebook and see what, what happens. Um, we're all entitled to do that. We have the freedom to do that. But I think if it's, a, if it's an issue that could be particularly dividing to church members, I think it would be much better to talk that through with them. So if you're the reader of that article and you don't agree and you take issue, go to that person and talk it through with them. If you're the, the person that put it up there, you could tell them what you were thinking about it. And you can remind them that, yeah, we may disagree on this subject, but our unity is in Christ and not the conclusion of this particular author who wrote this particular blog post or whatever it would be. We don't want splinters and divisions. God doesn't want splinters and divisions in this local church or any church. And what's going to protect us is putting Christ and keeping Him at the center and remembering you're accepted because of Christ and what He's done, not your particular convictions on certain issues. And most likely, you didn't have those convictions when God welcomed you into His family because you didn't even think about them. You just, oh, Lord, I sinned. I believe in You, Jesus. And God said, come on in. So I'm not saying there's not a place for healthy debate. I think it's wonderful. It's a great sharpening thing for us to do. But we don't want to identify with things that are not central to the Bible and central to the New Testament in particular. So we want to practice hospitality. We want to accept one another as Christ has accepted us. And then finally, we want to befriend one another. You know, Lord willing, we go from meeting someone, having a meal with them, to really becoming a friend with to them, and they become a friend to us, and it's this mutual, beneficial thing. Well, what do friends do? Friends bear one another's burdens. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says, "A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity." So, a friend isn't a fair weather friend that is there when things are good, and you have money, and disappears when things are bad, and you have no money. That's a fair weather friend. A true friend is one that that bears with you, that hangs in there with you. It's the kind of friend that, as Chris was describing this morning, the friend that she went to see. It's a friend, sounds like a long-term friend, who has been there for decades and knew to just go to the Lord and pray for her friend who needed care and prayer. So friends bear one another burdens. Friends forgive and love one another. We're, We're to be forgiving and loving. Colossians chapter 3 says it this way. 
put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We should be marked by love and forgiveness because we received love and forgiveness in Christ. And so, as pastors, we're always a little bit nervous if we have a membership interview or talk to somebody who wants to join the church and is really excited and has this view of our church and Christians in general that they will never sin against them, they will never do anything wrong, and they're so excited about the church that I don't know what to do at times. I think, well, people might not be real, you know, they might sin against you at some point, but that feels weird to say in a membership interview. So you just kind of like hang in there with them until they realize that born-again Christians still have a sinful nature that remains and Every so often we may sin and let each other down and hurt one another. Well, when that happens, it's a, it's a time to apply what we've received in Christ. We've been loved and forgiven. And so friendships take work and they take love and forgiveness. And we need to work those things out. So friends demonstrate love and forgiveness. Friends serve one another. We inconvenience ourselves for one another just like Jesus, in the ultimate way, inconvenienced himself. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, he, he sacrificed in the ultimate way. And so when we're, we're friends with one another, we have the opportunity to lay down our lives and our schedules to serve one, one another when we're in need. I know many of you do this. Friends serve one another. Friends confront and correct one another when needed. Proverbs 27, 6a says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A good friend will tell you when you're off course. I am so grateful for my good friends who will tell me if I'm off course. They are true, genuine friends. You're not being a good, genuine friend if someone is about to nosedive off a cliff and you say nothing about that. You give no warning. You give no appeal. You say, hey, you're, you're about to plummet here. You just go like everything's okay. A good friend will, will throw themselves in front of the friend who's going off the cliff and say, stop! There's no joy in this path. There's no satisfaction in this path. You need to stop. Because I love you, I'm telling you that. Friends confront, friends correct. And we're going to mess this up. So you're going to have friends who are going to try this, and maybe the timing's off, maybe they misunderstood, maybe they didn't ask enough questions. But when they do it, and maybe it comes across abrasive, realize they're doing it because they love you. And it was intimidating for them to even have the conversation. That's why they keep swallowing when they're trying to talk to you about something they think you're doing wrong. So give them the, the benefit of the doubt. They're trying to be a good, loving, caring friend. So we're to befriend one another. And then lastly, friends bring comfort to one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. So God comforts us when we're afflicted so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Many of you have walked through difficult times and circumstances. You've experienced God's comfort and care. And God wants to use you to help others as they go through difficult circumstances and afflictions so that the comfort you receive from the Lord, they may too experience through you. So we're to befriend one another. And all of this is under the big umbrella that God has a growing family. And He wants to use you and I to care for that growing family. So we're to make room for our new brothers and sisters that are coming in to His family. So in way of recap, practice hospitality because Christ sought you out when you were a stranger and welcomed you into His family. Accept one another the way God accepted you into His family. And lastly, befriend one another just in the same way that Jesus befriended you when you first trusted in Him. Let's pray and the band can come up. You guys can stand. Lord, we're, we're amazed that, first of all, we are in Your family, that we know You, that You have rescued us, You have paid for our sins. You have taken the wrath we deserve. And now you give us the the opportunity to love and care for others. Lord, help us as a church to to grow and excel in, in this area. And may we always be motivated, not by guilt or fear, but because of your love and compassion and care and pursuit of us. Lord, and, and anyone who who came here today by themselves and, and really knows no one, pray that as the, the, the Sunday service ends, they would experience particular care from you and from your people. And Lord, we, we thank you that they have not gone unnoticed this morning. And uh, we love you and ask this in your name. Amen.